Hey everyone, this is Johnny Martinez, pastor of Restoration Church, and welcome to our podcast. We hope this podcast inspires you and encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. We hope you enjoy the sermon. Hey, it's good to be in church with you guys today. I want to invite you today to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. I invite you to open your Bibles. Uh, really um, am thankful to be here with you all, uh, whether it's your first time, second time, third time, uh, and, uh, or if you're a uh, regular here at Restoration, you've made your home here at Restoration. It's such an honor uh, to be with you each and every Sunday. I also want to welcome anyone just watching online through YouTube and Facebook. We're glad that you have tuned in with us. Uh, again, we are just continuing through our a series through the Gospel of Mark, uh, and today we are we're halfway through church. We're a little over halfway through. Come on, it only it only took us about a year and six months. Um, so yeah, but uh, we're halfway through. I, I'm uh, I'm excited. I think uh, uh, it's been a blessing. I hope it's been a blessing to you as we've journeyed through Mark and as you've been able to see uh, the progression of Jesus's ministry and really get a glimpse of the life and the work of Jesus. Christ. Now, today is uh, a really important passage, but I re- just for, out of curiosity, and I want everyone to play. I want everyone to play here today. Uh, with the show of hands, I just want to know how many of you have ever heard a preaching or a message on the transfiguration of Jesus. Raise your hand. Raise your hand. One, two, three, four, five, about five of us. Five of us? Okay. How many of you, maybe you've never heard a message on the transfiguration, but you know what it is? Raise your hand. Okay. So that's kind of, that's kind of where, what I was thinking. I would say about 95% of those of you in here have never heard a message on the transfiguration of Jesus. And about 95% of you don't know what the transfiguration of Jesus is is. And um, I just find it very, honestly, kind of heartbreaking and a little sad uh, that uh, we can go basically our entire Christian lives and not know and not understand what the transfiguration of Jesus is. Uh, And partly, you know, it's not all the pastor's responsibility. It's also on you. But at the same time, it's also the pastor's responsibility to be able to give you a healthy, uh, full word of God, right? And so that is one of the reasons I believe that one of the benefits of really going through the book of a, a book of the Bible or books of the Bible that it exposes uh, the church to things that really we've never been exposed to. Um, it, it forces the pastor to preach on things that the pastor normally wouldn't preach on. So, for example, I would never just pick the transfiguration, and you'll see why. Like, I just wouldn't pick that to do a sermon on the transfiguration or whatever it is. But, man, isn't that crazy, church, that we can go our entire lives without really knowing this important moment in Jesus' ministry. And so this just, to me, confirms uh, and really gives me a deeper conviction to continue to preach through books of the Bible here at Restoration Church. And I believe here today that the transfiguration of Jesus is going to really be encouraging to you. 
uh, it's going to be inspiring to you. And we're going to get a little deep here in this text. Um, so let me just set up that context real quick. Um, Jesus was preaching uh, to the crowds. Uh, Jesus was preaching to his disciples as well. And he basically says, hey, if you really want to be a follower, if you, want to, if you want to come after me, if you want to be my disciple, you have to do three things. You have to deny yourself, you have to take up your cross, and you have to follow me. And so Jesus right now is preaching to a bunch of people, and this is where we kind of leave off. Uh, next is the transfiguration. It says this, if you open your Bibles to Mark chapter 9, verse 1, it says this. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes become, become radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said, Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down from the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the manor to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do, you, why do the scribes say that first Elijah might come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did, not, they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. A transfiguration. Let's pray. God, we want to be people who know your word, understand your word. We want to be students and really theologians of your word. And God, I pray today that as many of us here today haven't heard this message or this passage, I pray that you would speak to us powerfully today, that you would encourage us with your word, that you would show us your glory, and your majesty, and your beauty. God, as we wrestle with this text, may you challenge us even in that, just challenge us to be true followers of you. God, we love you, and we love your word. And we hold it high here. We honor your word, God. It's not just a book of fairy tales. It's not just a book of mythology, but it's your word to us. God, I pray you would speak to us, not through any of my wisdom, not through any of my opinion, but God, speak to us through your word, your powerful, infallible, inerrant, authoritative word. God, we love you and we honor you here in this place. And everyone says, amen. 
Back in my youth days, um, I really looked forward to a couple of things as a youth pastor. Uh, one of them, one of those things that I really looked forward to as a youth pastor was camp. Uh, I loved summer camp and I loved winter camp. I would take my students every year to summer camp and I would take them to winter camp. I just loved it. Uh, I loved going there on the way back. It was a whole different story. I was exhausted. And just think about it, being in a 15-passenger van with junior hires and their shoes are off. Uh, and uh, man, those boys, it was the junior high boys van, I'm telling you that. But anyway, so I look forward to youth camp. We would take, I would take all of these junior high and high school students up a mountain. Normally we'd go to like Prescott or a couple of times we went to, to Colorado. And so we would go up this mountain, right, for summer camp and youth camp. And it was really cool to see students go up this mountain and, uh, and just go on this camp. We're in the middle of the forest and, and just really have an encounter with Jesus. Uh, it, it was really not that you have to go to the mountain to get all spiritual and to have an encounter with Jesus, but there was something about taking students out of that normal element, right, away from home, away from all the stuff that's going on at school and things like that, and taking them out to the mountain, to, to summer camp or winter camp or whatever, to youth camp, and, and, and allowing them to connect with God, allowing them to put all those distracted, distractions aside, uh, allowing them to really uh, not get on their phones, right, because there's no service a lot of times up there, and so it's a lot of times we kind of make them put their phones away. And it was just really cool to see these students have this mountain encounter or mountain experience with God. And so God really spoke to a lot of them. God really worked in a lot of their lives. Now, obviously, you're going to have some students, right, who are on that camp high. Man, I'm going to just win the world for Jesus at camp. And then they come back down and they quickly phase them the minute they get there. I mean, that's, that's what happens. It's okay. Uh, but then there's some students that, that that camp experience, that youth camp experience was um, a, a vital part of their journey, I remember taking these students to youth camp one time, and, and they, they kind of did this kind of altar call thing, and they said, who's, who's going to be, who wants to commit to doing, like, full-time ministry in the future? And I'm just looking around to the, my youth group, and I had students, like, stand up. I'm like, okay, you know, this is awesome. Like, that's super cool. You know, I really hope they make it. And honestly, the truth is that looking back now, there are some of those students who stood up that day who are currently doing like full-time ministry in churches. Actually, one of them is uh, the youth pastor at the place where, where I used to be a youth pastor at. That was super cool. So these students go up to this mountain. They have this encounter with God. And for a lot of them or for a few of them, you know, that was a very, very pivotal moment in their journey. It was a moment they could look back on and say, man, God really worked in my life. God really showed himself in my life. And because of that mountain experience, God really changed and transformed my life. And so today, church, I want to take us on a youth camp. I want to take us on this journey today. I want to take us on this mountaintop experience, on a mountain high experience with God to really look at the transfiguration of Jesus. And here's my main point for today. Normally I give it at the very end, but I, I kind of want to set it up front today. It's this. My hope and my prayer is that his transfiguration shapes our transformation. That, that's, that's simple, basic. That's, that's, my, that's my point. 
that, that his transfiguration, as we will look at it in a deeper way, that it would shape and transform our lives. Now, how is the transfiguration then going to cause transformation in our life? Like, how is that going to happen? There's three points that I want to give you, again, based off of this passage and in this passage. And the first is this. So I'm building my case today on the fact that his transfiguration that we're about to see is going to transform our lives if we apply it. So the first point is this, if you're taking notes. First, we must look upon the glory of the sun. We must look upon the glory of the sun. So in verse 1, uh, Jesus basically tells the crowd that there are some people in the crowd that are not going to die until they see the kingdom of God come in power. In a few moments, we are going to see the people that Jesus was talking about, and we are going to see what he means by the kingdom coming with power. We're going to see that. Here are the people actually in verse 2. It says that Peter and James and John. So Jesus takes Peter and James and John to a mountain. Those are the people that Jesus is speaking about. That they're not going to die until they see the kingdom of God, of God coming. And so Peter, James, and John are Jesus' inner circle. Yes, he had the 12, but he also had the three that he really invested in. If you remember when Jesus healed Jairus' daughter, it was Peter, James, and John who were the only ones in the room. Later on, we're going to see where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John into the Garden of Gethsemane to really see Jesus in agony. And so these guys are the people, these guys are the, the guys, the group that Jesus takes on this high mountain. Most likely the mountain here is Mount Hermon. It's about 9,000 feet high, and the reason why it's most likely Mount Hermon, a pretty, pretty high mountain, was because, one, it's high, but two, it's really close to Caesarea Philippi, where Peter confessed Jesus is Christ, if you remember that. That's where Peter confessed Jesus is Christ, so they're around that area. So Jesus takes Peter and James and John up on this high mountain, and Mark tells us that he was transfigured. Here's where we get transfiguration from, that he was transfigured. The Greek word there means to change in a manner visible to others, to change in a manner visible to others. Uh, this word here, this Greek word is used four times in the New Testament. One, it's used here. It's also used in the Matthew account, the very same transfiguration account. It's also used three and four times, the, the third and fourth time in Paul's letters. One in Romans when he's, when he's basically uh, challenging uh, the Roman Christians to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's also found in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, when Paul talks about being transformed into the image of God. So it's like this idea of a visible change in people's lives. So that's what the transfiguration is. There's a visible change in something, a visible way that we can see a change. Now the question is, what did Jesus change into or how did Jesus change? Well, we don't have to look far. Mark tells us here. Mark tells us that his clothes became radiant intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. I mean, just, just think about that for a second. 
you're Peter and James and John, and you're just thinking you're going to go hang out with Jesus. And you're on this mountain, and you look at Jesus, and his clothes becomes radiant. Not, not that he's reflecting something, not that he's reflecting the sun or the energy from something, but that there's this brightness, an intense brightness that is being produced by Christ himself. I mean, what would you be thinking if you were Peter, James, and John? Not only was his clothes super bright, but in the parallel account in Matthew, it says that his face shone like the sun. So not only his clothes, but his face. In Luke, it says that the appearance of his face was altered. I mean, think about that, that the appearance of his face was altered. Now, I want to pause for a second here. Ladies, if you're trying to convince your husband about getting a little, a little Botox, a, a little facelift or something, this is the verse. Jesus' face was altered and so is mine. Come on, somebody. Okay. I'm just trying to follow Jesus, babe. Okay. Just trying to follow. Some of you are like, I don't need to convince him. I could do whatever. Okay, whatever. <laughs> but think about that. His clothes is bright. It says that, that there's no earthly person that could bleach them, meaning it's supernatural. It's a supernatural brightness. It's a supernatural intensity that is coming out of his face and his clothes. Now, what is the significance of this, church? What is the significance of Jesus' light just bursting forth in front of the disciples? Well, if we look at the context, we know that Jesus has been talking about his death and his resurrection. So what this is, the significance of the transfiguration, is this is a preview of the glory of the resurrection of Jesus. This is a preview of his second coming. I mean, the disciples just confessed him as Christ. They're still trying to figure him out. And so Jesus says, hey, look at my glory. I will, I'm going to die and I'm going to be raised to life in glory. And guess what? I will come back one day in glory. And this is just a glimpse, just a preview of what one day we will see. If you are in Christ, this is a preview that we can just look forward to and await and hope for that one day Jesus Christ will come back in glory, in power, in his full divinity, in his full authority to establish his kingdom here on earth finally. It is a preview. Yeah, praise God. Praise God, church. It's a preview of his glory, of his majesty, of his beauty, of his divinity. That's what the significance of the transfiguration is. And so, man, things get, weird. things get weirder. So think about it. You're a disciple. Again, you're a mountaintop experience. You're there. You just saw Jesus just blow up like a billboard. You're like, what's going on? Then next thing you know, Elijah and Moses show up. You're just like, what, man? Like, man, that burrito I ate today is I'm just tripping out, man. What the heck's going on? You see Elijah and Moses show up. 
Elijah and Moses, out of all people, these guys show up. Things just get weird. And so Jesus starts to have a holy huddle there with Elijah and Moses, and they're talking, and they're talking to each other. Luke tells us what they were talking about, so we don't have to guess what they were talking about. Jesus was telling them about his departure. He was telling them about his coming death and resurrection. He was saying, hey, boys, huddle up. I got to tell you something. Here's the game plan. So, hey, you guys, you guys prepare the way, all of your prophecies. Guess what? I'm going to fulfill them. And guess how I'm going to fulfill them, guys? I'm going to the cross. I'm going to be departing here soon. And so he's explaining that to Elijah and Moses, and they have a holy huddle there. Now, the question is, why Elijah and why Moses? Why not Abraham, Isaac, Jacob? Why, why not Isaiah or Jeremiah? Or why, why, other, why not other people? Well, both were heroic figures in the New Testament. Both experienced theophanies on mountain. A theophany is basically God manifesting himself to people in a very tangible way. Both were faithful to the call, both suffered for God, both were rejected by people, and both were vindicated by God. And so most theologians believe that the reason why Elijah and Moses are there, and it's going to get a little more clear in just a second, is because they were serving as witnesses to Jesus. They were serving as witnesses to the the identity of Jesus. They were there to confirm his identity in front of Peter, James, and John. Now, Mark tells us that uh, as they were seeing this, the disciples, right, like they were, they were seeing, <laughs> you know, Jesus super bright and talking to Elijah and Moses. And so Peter, he's the one that's always quick to talk. I mean, he doesn't even think about stuff. Peter just talks first and he thinks second. Any of you guys do that? Any of you guys? come? I know I do. I, think, I talk a lot. I talk a lot. But uh, so Peter just starts talking and he says, this is so weird. I don't know why I think it's weird, but he says, Jesus, it's a good thing we're here. Like, that's just so weird, right? Like, I'm glad I'm here, Jesus. Like, that's super cool, right? So that's what he says. And then he says, hey, how about we just start making tents, Jesus? How about we make a tent for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah? And Mark tells us the reason why he said this was because he was completely terrified. He didn't know what to say. He was like, I'm glad I'm here. Let's get building. Like what, you know, so he just starts saying all this stuff in the presence of God. Now, come on. What would you guys do? Like, what would you do if you saw this, right? Like, would you stay quiet? Would you talk? Like, would you run away? I mean, it's normal for Peter to say all this stuff. But here's the other thing, too. I believe that Peter also thought that the kingdom had come. I mean, They were waiting for an Elijah. So Elijah was supposed to come before the Messiah. Elijah's here. Jesus is the Messiah. So Peter's like, boys, the kingdom is here. Let's make some tents. Let's set up camp, and we're going to do this. Like, we're going to establish Israel. We're going to kick Rome's butt. Like, let's go. That's what he thought. That was not the case, as we're going to see in just a bit. But isn't it? Just a beautiful picture, though. Peter, James, and John. Jesus, Elijah, Moses. Jesus is bright as the sun. They were looking upon his beauty, his glory, his majesty. They were looking 
at the few, a preview of his future glory and resurrection. Uh, we had the chance uh, this summer, uh, Christina and I, to, um, uh, to go to Hawaii. It's been a long time since we've uh, taking a trip, a really good trip. Uh, we, it's been years since before we started planting the church. And so there is no vacation as a church planter. There's all, all there is is work, work, work. And, uh, and so we got finally the chance to go to, uh, to Hawaii. And one of those days, uh, we watched the sunset. Actually, I think I have a picture of the sunset. Uh, so we were just chilling there, uh, just Christina and I. And uh, we were just watching the beauty of the sunset. And and we weren't talking to each other. We were just sitting there, and, and we were just looking upon the beauty of this, the, the color of the sunset, the color of the sand. Uh, we were looking at just the beauty and the radiance of a sunset. And, and I remember as, as I was looking at the sunset and its beauty, uh, I turn around, and Christina's looking at my beauty. I'm like, babe, it's about the sunset. It's not about me. It's just, gosh, not a piece of meat here, okay? I have feelings. I have a lot of feelings like, geez. When was the last time you looked upon Christ? When was the last time you beheld his glory? When was the last time that you stopped everything you were doing to simply focus and meditate beauty and the glory and the majesty and the power and the love and the grace of Jesus. When was the last time we just knelt before the King of Kings, before the Lord of Lords in silence? You see, because a lot of times we're like Peter, right? Like we, we feel like in the presence of God, we always have to say something. Like, we all, like, like when you go to God in prayer, we feel like we're always having to pray. We always have to break the awkward silence. Or, or we're like Peter. We always feel like we have to do something, do, do, do something. But it's not about doing. It's about being. It's about being in the presence of God. It's about sitting before him in silence, meditating on him, church. And I'm not talking about Eastern meditation where the the goal of Eastern meditation is to clear the mind. Biblical Christian meditation, it's about filling your mind with Christ and his glory and his word. It was the last time you just took five minutes to look upon the glory, the beauty, the splendor of the sun. I want to encourage you today. This week, very practical challenge. Will you take five minutes? Five. Do you have five minutes? Five minutes to slow down. To slow down, go to your place, whatever, wherever it is, and simply just sit there. Simply just sit there and meditate upon Christ. Meditate about this passage. Meditate about his love. His grace for you, his forgiveness, his glory, his beauty, his one day returning glory and power. Man, it really changes us, church. To look upon Christ in a deep way will change the way we live for Christ. 
It's not simply just to meditate and check the box. It's so that our affections for him may grow. And when your affections for Christ grow, trust me, the transfiguration will transform your life. Look upon the glory of the Son. Second thing, listen to the voice of the Father. Look upon the glory of the Son. Second, listen to the voice of the Father. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. I mean, this experience gets crazier, right? I mean, Jesus is just shining light, you know, and uh, Elijah and Moses show up. They're talking, and then it gets weirder. A cloud comes in, and a voice starts speaking out of the cloud. I mean, that is crazy, right? That is just amazing. Now, does this situation kind of sound familiar to anybody? Please say yes. Just please say Make something up. Just make something up. I don't even care. It sounds familiar. It should sound familiar, right? The baptism. Jesus' baptism, right? When Jesus comes out of the water, what does he say? You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Here in in Jesus' baptism, the father commissions Jesus as he begins his preaching ministry. But here... And the transfiguration is not a commissioning for Jesus to go out. He's, been, he's already ministered. The reason why the Father says this is not to commission him, but to confirm Jesus' identity. To confirm Jesus' identity to Peter, James, and John with Moses and Elijah serving as witnesses. That makes sense? It's like, hey, this is the true Messiah. I'm confirming his identity. He is my son. He is who he says he is. He is the Messiah. He not only confirmed Jesus, but he confirmed Peter's confession. Hey, Peter, you actually got it right. It is the Messiah that you you confirmed, that you confessed. And so it's no longer a commissioning, but a confirmation of Jesus's divinity, Jesus's authority, Jesus's identity. Then the father says this. He says, listen to him. In the baptism, he spoke to Jesus. In the transfiguration, he speaks to the disciples. This is for the disciples now. The father says to the disciples, listen to him. Listen to him. To Jesus, He commands Peter, James, and John to listen to him. And this is not just a passive listening. It's not a one ear out the other type of listening. It's not a let me go to church, hear the word. It's going to go in one ear and ear, one out the other type of listening. It's a listening that is an active listening. Really what he's saying, I don't even know why they translate it that way. But hey, obey him. This is my son, Obey him. Now, what must they listen to? When when, when the father says to the disciples, hey, you guys must listen, what what must they listen to? His words, obviously, right? What was Jesus talking about six days prior? 
you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. In its immediate context, the father was saying, listen to my son. Listen to what he told you six days ago. Because things are going to get hard. It's not easy being a follower. You've now seen something that you cannot unsee. Obey him. In its immediate context, it's deny, die, and devote yourself to Christ. In its greater context, it's listening to every single word of Jesus. And so after the father says, hey, listen to my son, obey my son, Moses and Elijah disappeared like that. Completely disappeared. And Mark says, I have to read it because this is actually very important. It says, and, they, and suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. You see here, let me just pause for a second. We have this idea or this tendency to read through passages of the Bible and just read through them, and that's about it, and just at least try to understand them. And we miss so much. Can I just tell you, it's not about quantity. It's about quality. Because this little phrase, but Jesus only, man, it packs a punch. There's so much depth and power to those three little words, but we oftentimes miss it because we skim over the word of God. These three little words might seem insignificant, church, but let me tell you, they're not. They're not. Why? There's three reasons why these three words are so, so significant. The first is this, that Jesus there left by himself displays his preeminence. It displays that he is superior. It displays that he is glorious. It displays that he is supreme. It wasn't Elijah and Moses that were left there. It was Jesus. Jesus is the last man standing there. The second reason is this. God is due, was in this situation was doing a new thing in redemptive history. Previously, God spoke or God revealed himself, right, through the Old Testament scriptures. That the New Testament wasn't completed yet, so he would reveal himself through the Old Testament scriptures. What were the two major divisions in the Old Testament scriptures? The law and the prophets. Moses represents the law. Elijah, who was a prophet, represents the prophets. So what does that mean? It means that the fact that Jesus was left by himself means that God is doing something new, that he is no longer using the Old Testament law, but that he is doing something new, that he is revealing himself, that his full revelation is in Jesus Christ. That, that Moses and Elijah are no longer needed because Jesus is superseding the Old Testament law. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 says, Long ago, 
At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. He is revealing himself through Jesus Christ. He supersedes the law and the prophets that are represented by Moses and Elijah. And lastly, number three, Jesus alone is the climax of salvation history and is the fulfillment of what Moses and Elijah came to accomplish. Jesus fulfills all of those prophecies. Jesus fulfills all of the things that Elijah came to do or that Moses was supposed to do. Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus is the greater Elijah. But Jesus only. It's amazing that Peter, James, and John just kind of were there. Can you imagine that? Looking up at a cloud. And, and, and hearing a voice from the cloud saying, listen, listen, Peter, listen, James, listen, John. I'm confirming him as Christ. Listen. You know what's the first thing that came to my mind, church, when I, when I just read that passage? It was this, actually. I like you guys. Okay, what? That's seriously the first thing that came. Like, listen. Like, listen, Peter. Listen, James. Listen, Johnny. Listen. Obey. Listen. I, stop doing. Stop saying. Just listen to me. Listen to the voice of the Father. How are you doing listening to the voice of the Father? To listen to the voice of the Son. How are you doing at obeying the words of Christ and the word of Christ? Again, in the immediate context, deny, take up, and follow him. How are you doing listening, obeying, denying, taking up your cross, and following Jesus? How are you doing obeying the word of God? How are you doing obeying the scriptures? You see, John 14, 23 says this. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. He will obey my word. He will listen to my word. Our love for Christ is displayed through our obedience for Christ. How are you doing listening to the word? I don't think we talk about obedience a lot because it rubs people the wrong way. But Christ is calling for obedience, church. But are you in his word? So that you know how to obey God. So that you know how to please God. So that you know what God is asking of you, of asking of me. If we really love God, we would obey his word. And here's the thing, we don't just obey anybody. We obey the preeminent Christ. We obey God's final revelation. We obey the greater Elijah, the greater Moses. We obey the last man standing, the one who came to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies. We, we, we obey the glorious king who's going to come back in power and majesty and in glory. We don't just simply obey anyone. We obey 
the glorious and transfigured God through the word of God, by the spirit of God. So how are our lives transformed through the transfiguration? Number one, we look upon and behold the glory of God. Number two, we listen and obey the voice of God. And number three, and lastly, we learn from the suffering servants. We learn from the suffering servants of God. So Jesus, after this encounter, heads back down the mountain. Youth camp is over. Summer camp is over, boys. Let's go back down. And he tells him, hey, make sure that you don't tell anybody about this or who I am until I'm raised from the dead. Don't tell anybody. And Mark was saying that, Mark tells us that they were questioning uh, what this rising from the dead might mean. So Jesus is going to die and rise again. They didn't have, the, the, Judaism didn't have a, 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 a compartment to really understand this. Why? Because Jews believed that there would be one resurrection of all people uh, before the judgment. So there's one resurrection of all people before the judgment at the very end of time. So the fact that Jesus was going to die and rise again, they didn't, they didn't understand that. And so as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus, uh, the disciples tell Jesus, they ask him a question. Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Like, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? So according to Malachi chapter 4 and chapter 3, uh, it says that, that God was going to send Elijah the prophet uh, before the Messiah. So that's what they believe, that, that Elijah was going to be sent before the Messiah. So the disciples were kind of just, just you know, uh, confused. They were like, Jesus, so you're the Messiah, but, you know, Elijah really hasn't come. So how can you be the Messiah? Or did Elijah already come? Like, we're just kind of confused a little bit. Like, how do these prophecies work? They really didn't understand that at all. And then so Jesus says, Elijah does come first to restore all things. Essentially, Jesus says, yes, the experts in the law are right. Elijah must come first before the Messiah. But then he gives two qualifications or two explanations on what he means. He first says that the Son of Man must come and suffer many things and be, be treated with contempt or be treated badly. And so really what Jesus is doing here is, is this is that the restoration of Elijah will be accomplished through the suffering of Christ. That's what he's saying. So, so hey, hey, Elijah will come, and Elijah is coming, and he will restore all things, but this restoration that's taking place, it's going to happen by the suffering of the Son of Man, me. In this, you guys remember when Peter had that confession, but Jesus had to really correct him, his, his understanding of the Messiah? Like Peter thought it was a political leader, a revolutionary leader, and Jesus says, no, 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 it's a suffering Messiah. It's one that's going to go to the cross, and Peter's like, what's going on? That's the same thing that Jesus is doing here. He's saying, hey, this restoration, it is going to happen, but not in the way you think. It's going to happen by suffering, the death of Christ. So then he goes on to say this. Yeah, he actually says, you know what, actually... He says, Elijah has come. Elijah already came. And not in the transfiguration, but in John the Baptist. You see, they thought that, that Jews thought that, actually, that Elijah was actually going to come. But no, it was someone in the spirit or the likeness or the power of Elijah. 
And actually, in, in Matthew 17, 13, says this, that then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So restoration comes by the suffering of Christ. Restoration comes by the suffering of John the Baptist. And we must learn from the suffering servants. We must learn from the suffering servants, church, that have gone before us. How many of the disciples were put to death? Out of the 12, how many of the disciples were put to death for their faith? 11. 11 out of 12 disciples were put to death, were beheaded, were martyred, were crucified for their faith. They really took this deny, take up, and follow seriously. And we must learn from the suffering of Jesus. We must learn from the suffering of John the Baptist. We must learn from the suffering of the disciples. And guess what? It's still happening today. Suffering is still happening today. We just, we're just not aware of it in our culture. Pastor John Paul Sankuji planted a church in a Muslim neighborhood outside of Bangai, capital of Central African Republic, in 1993. For the most part, for many years, he maintained a good relationship with the community. For the most part, he maintained a good relationship with the government. But then civil war broke out, and members of his church and other pastors' church fled because, man, it got hostile for Christians. Christians started to get persecuted by Islamist extremists. And so pastors left their churches, members left their churches, and, and John Paul's wife, Mary, urged him to leave. He said, you got to go. You got to leave. This is not the place for you. You know, go minister somewhere else. But Pastor Jean-Paul, he had this deep, deep, deep conviction that he was supposed to stay there because that community needed Jesus and that community needed the gospel. And so on February 7th, 2017, not too long ago, the Islamist extremist shot Pastor Jean-Paul to death outside his house. They entered his house and looted it. They entered his church and looted it. They entered his house and burned it to the ground. They burned his church to the ground. And Christians were persecuted in that area. He left behind a wife who was married to 48, who was married to 48 years, 11 children, 17 grandchildren. In that same community, five other evangelical pastors were killed. Pastor Jean-Paul knew the risk. He knew what it meant to count the cost of following Christ. He knew what it was to deny himself and take up his cross and follow Jesus. He knew it. May we learn from the servants of Christ of old and the servants of Christ new. This is nothing new. Suffering for Christ is still happening, church. 
And yes, the transfiguration is about glory and that future glory that one day we will experience. But let me tell you this. If we want to share in the glory of Christ, we must also be willing to share in his sufferings as well. Learn from the suffering servants of Christ. Are you willing to suffer for what's morally right? Are you willing to suffer in your jobs for what's morally right? What are you going to do when your boss asks you to do something that's contrary to Scripture? What are you going to do? It's coming, right? It's already kind of here. What are you going to do? What are you going to do when the culture continues to get hostile to Christianity? And you got to take a stand. And it's going to cost you friends. It's going to cost you family members. It might cost you your job. It might cost you finances. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Are you willing to suffer for what's morally right? Are you willing to suffer for the word of God? Do you have deep, deep convictions in your life? Are you rooted firmly upon Christ? What are you going to do with the will of God and the plan of God, the purpose of God for your life includes suffering? My hope is that you would take a stand. My hope is that you wouldn't compromise. My hope is that you would do what John the Baptist did. Stood up for Christ. My hope is that you would do what Jesus did. Didn't compromise, but gave up his life. Obeyed the will of the Father. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Transfiguration is about obedience. About listening to the voice of the Father. The transfiguration is about suffering learning to suffer like the servants of Christ have done. The transfiguration is about glory, to behold the glory of God, to look upon his beauty, and to say, as John said in Revelation, come, Lord Jesus, come. We await you. We await that glorious moment. May the transfiguration transform your life. Now, let me ask you a question. By a show of hands, how many of you what the transfiguration is? All right, there we go. That's a lot better. That's a lot better. That's a lot better. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your word. It's not just a this passage is not just a passage that, that's, oh, that's cool. Jesus became radiant. We see these kind of crazy miracles and supernatural event. It's not just a story of a supernatural event, God. It's a supernatural reality 
for the believers today. That that same glory that appeared in the Mount of Transfiguration is the same glory that we will once one day experience as believers when we are taken up with you, glorified bodies, in your presence forever, worshiping you, looking upon who you are. And God, we don't need a mountain. We don't need, we don't need to go to camp. We don't need to go up the, the mountain to the forest. God, anywhere we are, your presence is there. It's not just a supernatural story. It's a call to obedience. It's a call to suffering. And Jesus, I pray that every single person that calls a restoration a home would live it out. Would live it out. That we're different. Church, stand up. I want to pray for you right now. God, I pray for every single person here today. May you strengthen them when they have to make a decision, God, that is costly. When they fail, you pick them up. When they're stagnant, God, I pray they may look to you as you extend your hand down to them, God. Who are these people here at Restoration Church? Who are they? They are true followers of Jesus. They are people who are willing to suffer for the gospel, to suffer for the kingdom of God. They are people who bet the farm and risk everything because they live by faith. They are people who deny themselves daily for the sake of others. They are people who take up their cross and are willing to sacrifice everything to the point of death for his kingdom. They are people who will follow you, Jesus. People who will follow you wherever you lead, no matter the cost. They are people who obey, people who listen, and people who don't run away from suffering, but invite it in. They are true followers of Christ. To you be all the glory and all of the honor and all of God's people say, amen. Thank you for listening. Special thanks to those who give generously to this ministry. Without you, this ministry would not be possible. If you feel led to give, please use the link below as we seek to make a difference in people's lives. Also, please make sure to share this with your family and your friends. Again, thank you so much for listening.